I grew up playing football. Football's my sport, and I know a lot of people are kind of against football, Justin Tucker. And, um, it, you know, I agree that football needs to kind of work on safety, but it's hard for me to give it up because it's my sport. You know, I, I grew up playing it my whole life. I love the bond that you make with your teammates when you play football, when you're, you're dirty and covered in grass and totally exhausted after you've had a two-hour practice. I love the strategy behind calling plays and how you have to think very you know, thoughtfully about which play you call and what order to accomplish a goal and to move 10 yards, 20 yards, eventually to get a touchdown. I love teamwork because in football, every single person has a role and a job to play on every play. And you can't take that play off because everyone has to do their part in order for you to succeed on every single given play. And I was a receiver, and uh, that means I was a diva uh, because receivers are divas. If you don't know anything about uh, football, then here's what you, you're going to get a little nugget. The, the receivers, the ones that catch the ball, they like the ball, and they want it all the time. And uh, so we're labeled uh, the diva position because we want a a play called for us every single play. And the thing that receivers hate more than anything is blocking. We don't like to block. Blocking is the worst. It's exhausting, and we're not good at it. So, but, you know, they're like, hey, we have to run the ball. And we're like, okay, well, why? Just throw me the ball every single time. But we have to block, and so, you know, we we suck it up, and we, you know, we block, even though it's, it's not something we're good at. It's not something we enjoy. But it's the role that we have to play. And as we've been looking at this passage uh, in Nehemiah, it's interesting as we've been processing, as they're coming at God's work to build the wall, right? And every single person has a different role. Everyone has a different task. Everyone has a different position, if you will. And some of them are not very glamorous, right? We talked about the dung gate where the waste was taken in and out. Someone had to do that job. And it was actually a mayor that raised his hand and signed up to, to do really the least glamorous job of all. That was the blocking position. And uh, he chose to do that. And as we looked last week, if you're with us at one church, we talked about as the people of God kind of came together and said, God, we understand you have a burden for your city. You have a burden for your people, and it's become our vision. And now we're going to work together as a team. Everyone's going to find their role. Everyone's going to play their part. And then they face opposition. They, they come up against some people that, that want to beat them down. And so the people of God have to rally together. They have to trust God. They have to form a new strategy and then work together to move through the opposition. And that's where we pick up tonight. So they've, they've come together. They have a shared vision. They have a shared burden. They're working strategically. Each person has their role. They've faced opposition. They've rallied together and they've worked together. There's a quote that we read a few weeks ago by Henry Ford that's been ringing in my head for the past couple weeks. He says that coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress and working together is success. It's such a great quote. The people of God in this passage have not only come together, they haven't only kept together, but now they're actually working together. They're working alongside of each other. But it doesn't come without cost. There's a great cost associated with doing God's work. And that's what you see tonight in Nehemiah 5. Look at the first uh, five verses. Read along with me. It says, A great protest was mounted by the people including their, their wives, the whole family, rose up against the fellow Jews, said, some, some said, we have big families and we need food to just survive. So they're suffering. They're building the wall, but they're, they're hungry. They're suffering. 
Others are saying, well, listen, we've had to mortgage our fields and vineyards and homes to get enough grain to keep from starving. Others have said that we're having to borrow money to pay the royal tax to Persia on our fields and our vineyards. Look at this next part. Look, they said, we're the same flesh and blood as our brothers here. Our children are just as good as theirs. And yet these people, a large chunk of the people of God, are having to sell their children off as servants. Many of their daughters have already been sold to the wealthy families because they need them to provide, because they can't do anything about it because our fields and vineyards are owned by somebody else. The people here are getting frustrated. They're getting burned out and they're suffering because they're working together. Everybody has a part to play. It's a shared burden. It's a shared vision. And yet here's the issue. There are some people that don't want to contribute. There are some people that don't want to get involved. And it's causing suffering to happen on all of those that have actually jumped on board, that have grabbed a hold of the vision that God has given his people. And there's a great cost associated with doing God's work. And now, now they're actually suffering because people aren't coming together. When I, in football, the, the worst part of football is the end of practice. Did anyone here actually play football? American football? Okay, a few people. You're like afraid to raise your hand. It's okay. Um, the worst part about football is a second, the, the very end of practice because you know what happens at the end of practice. You have conditioning, right? And especially growing up in Florida, this is like the most cruel thing ever. You have two hours of practice where you're, you're sweaty and you're exhausted and you're dirty. And then you have to run sprints and bear crawls and long distance for anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes, depending on how good the coach said the practice was. Our coach used to say the proof is in the pudding. I don't know why, but that's what he used to say. So we would do conditioning and we knew that this was a cost that we had to endure. Nobody liked conditioning. I especially did not like conditioning, but we knew that if we wanted to accomplish our vision, if we wanted to be good, if we wanted to win districts, if we wanted to go to States, if we wanted to be a successful team, we had to do conditioning because we had to be in shape. I had to be able as a receiver to block on one play which I did not like. And then on the next play, be able to run with full energy and run around. And so we endured the cost. But here's what was unbearable. This is what frustrated you to no end is when other people on your team didn't run hard, when they wouldn't try. Uh, our coach used to say that they were lollygagging. I don't know what that means. I still don't know what that means, but that's what he would say. And so I use it sometimes now, even though I have no idea what I'm saying. But he said, you know, stop lollygagging. So what would happen is if, if someone wasn't running hard, that means everybody else had to run more. And that was so frustrating and unbearable because you're a part of a team and you're saying, listen, we're all in this together. And yet you're not playing your part. And now everybody else is suffering. Everybody else is suffering because you're not willing to do your part. It's exactly what is happening here in this passage, okay? The people of God have come together and said, we're all in. People have moved from the country into Jerusalem. People have said, I'm going to spend less time at work and devote more time to God's work. Some people have left their jobs and gone full time to rebuilding the wall and doing God's work. They have sacrificed money. They have sacrificed time. They have brought their talents and their resources to bear for God's work and God's vision. And then there are a group of people that are not willing to do anything. 
They're not willing to lift a finger. They're not willing to bring any resources. They're not willing to bring any time. And what's happening now is all of these people that are all in, they're suffering because they they don't have enough time to provide for their family. They're not able to work in the fields long enough to get food. And so now they're having to sell and mortgage off their homes and their vineyards and their fields. They're having to borrow money to pay Persia a tax, having to give their children away. And guess who they're doing all of that with? Other people that are on the team. Other fellow Jewish men and women that are wealthy. The nobles and the officials that are saying, hey, listen, we're not, we're not about building walls. We're not going to get involved in this. We're not going to bring any time. We're not going to bring any talent. We're not going to give any money. We're actually just going to sit back and let you contribute and we're just going to consume. And then one day we're going to reap the benefits once this wall gets built, even though we didn't do anything to help. Can you imagine how infuriating that is? Imagine what that feels like. The wealthy are sitting there and doing nothing. Not only are they not doing anything, they're also looking at it as an opportunity to make more money. They're looking at all the people that have sacrificed everything and are all in for God's work and are giving so much time and and talent and treasure. They're leveraging everything. They're holding everything open, asking God to use it as as he will. And they're saying, here's an opportunity for us to make some more money. So let's, let's take that home. Let's take that vineyard. Let's take some interest on them over there. We'll give them money, but then we'll, we'll take this. We'll take their children. Can you imagine what that feels like? Nehemiah, as he hears what's taking place, he gets infuriated. He gets angry. It says in verse 6, he says, I, Nehemiah, got really angry when I heard their protesting complaints. And after thinking it over, I called the nobles and officials on the carpet. And here's what he said. Each one of you is gouging his brother. You are gouging them. I called a big meeting to deal with them. And I told them we did everything we could to buy back our Jewish brothers who had to sell themselves as slaves to foreigners. See, they were exiled in Persia. They were servants. They were slaves. And Nehemiah and many others had to do everything just to get back to Jerusalem, just to have some semblance of normalcy, just to have a life again, a community, to not be indebted and to not have some job off in Babylon, but now actually to be in God's city with God's people. They had to do everything to get there. And now God's own people that aren't willing to contribute are putting them back into slavery, debt slavery, by taking their homes and their money and raising the interest on them. He says, does that, does that mean that we have to buy them back again? And they said nothing for what could they say? See, the wealthy here weren't only not willing to give any time or any talent, which I'm sure they had plenty. They weren't willing to give the thing that they had the most of either, which was any money. Instead, they were taking Instead of giving, they were taking. They weren't willing to contribute. They just simply wanted to consume. See, here's the reality. All of us have been given different measures of time, of spiritual gifts, of talent, of wealth. All of us have been given different measures as God's people, as God's family. And we are all able to give different measures according to what we've been 
given, what we've received, so we can give a certain amount of time and a certain amount of talent and certain spiritual gifts that God has given to us and, and money and treasure. And, and yet in this instance, there's a group of people that are saying, we're not going to give any. And we're actually going to cause all of those that are giving to have to give even more. And the reality is, is that we're going to process through it. And you think about this, that we've all been given a different amount of time, talent, and treasure. But here's the reality. Every single one of us is called to give time, talent, and treasure. It'll be of different levels, but we're all called to give it. Because the most infuriating thing is when someone is a part of the team, is a part of the family, is bought into the vision, but they're not willing to contribute. Because what it does is it ends up causing those that are contributing to suffer. And so what has to happen is we have to have a realignment. We have to be realigned. We have to be refocused. And that's what Nehemiah does here. In verse 9, he says, what you're doing is wrong. He looks at them straight in the face. He says, what you're doing is wrong. Is there no fear of God left in you? Don't you care what the nations around here and our enemies think of you? I and my brothers and the people working for me have also loaned them money. So Nehemiah and those, his friends and his community, they have given money. But this gouging them with interest has to stop. Nehemiah was giving not to make money back. They were giving to make money in return. Give them back their foreclosed lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and homes right now and forgive your claims on their money their grain, their new wine, and olive oil. And as they hear this from Nehemiah, here's how the nobles and the officials, those are just simply consuming, respond. They say, okay, we'll give it all back. We won't make any more demands on them. We'll do everything you say. So we read this, and and you're processing this passage, and you're starting in Nehemiah 1. You're seeing everything that's had to happened to get to this moment, how God worked in the life of Nehemiah so that the king would send him to Jerusalem and how he comes to Jerusalem and he rallies the people together and everybody has a role and people are not being arrogant and prideful and saying this job is, you know, I can't do it. Mayors are, are working at the dung gate and people are moving into the city and really grabbing a hold of God's vision and facing opposition. But then there's this group of people that are looking to make money off of them, just simply want to consume And it's shocking. And you're like, man, how selfish are these nobles? They're they're brothers and sisters. They're friends, next door neighbors. And yet look how they're treating them. And I think it's really important that when we see characters like this in Scripture, especially here, that we were very careful not to judge. Because typically, they're the picture of us. Because we fall into the same trap, right? What is an inherent human struggle? An inherent human struggle is that we want to consume more than contribute. I mean, I I will admit that I like to consume more than I like to contribute. I'd choose that any day. I will, if you're going to make something to eat, I will eat it. I do not like to make something and then give it. I'm not good at that. I want to consume. I don't want to contribute. I think part of the reason that we want to we like to consume is because we can control what we can consume, right? I want this. I'll take a little bit of that. I don't want that. Everything we consume in life, in our mind, it's our choice. We choose it, but when we have to contribute something, we lose control, right? So think about, I'm going to give my time. 
well, man, I don't know how I'm going to be used. I don't know who I may be working alongside. I don't know what kind of job they're going to put me in if I offer to contribute. If you give your talent, you kind of lose some control when you want to give your talent because you don't know if your talent is going to be used in a way that you want it to be used. You're kind of at the mercy of those that are placing you in certain positions. When you give your money, when you give your treasure, it's not up to you to determine how it's spent. It's difficult because you're not in control. And so it's hard for us to contribute. And yet God's work requires contribution. Always God's work requires contribution. Luke uh, 14 is a very famous passage where Jesus says something very shocking. And it's just as shocking now as it was when he first said it. He says this, anyone who comes to me, listen to these words, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of their father, their mother, their spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own self cannot be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross, the emblem of suffering, and follow behind me can't be my disciple. There is a great cost associated with being a Christian. There there is. There is a cost associated with being a Christian. And there is contribution that is required in following Christ. He says later, right after this in the passage, he says, if you're going to build a house, would you build a house without counting the cost first? Of course not. Would a king go into a battle without counting the cost? No, of course not. He says this. As he ends, he says, if you aren't willing to take what is dearest to you, what you cherish the most, whether plans or people, and say goodbye, then you can't be my disciple. Let that sink in for a moment, okay? Jesus is saying, if you aren't willing to take what is most dearest to you, whether plans or people, and say goodbye, then you can't be my disciple. Here's what He's saying, you can't embrace the vision that I have given you. You cannot claim to follow after me, to hold and to share the burden that I have for people and for this city and to be a part of my vision and yet say, I'm these things in my life are off limits. You can't say, I'm all in, Jesus. I'm following after you. I'm going to run after your, your vision. I'm going to do it alongside your people. I'm going to contribute, but I'm not going to contribute these things. These things are mine. Jesus says, if the most dearest things to you, you don't hold with an open hands, how can you be my disciple? And this, I'll be honest, this is the place where most people, when they hear this, they either tune out or they check out. Because this isn't our imagination of Christianity. Because there's a cost associated with it. Jesus is saying that if you are not willing to let go of the things that give you your identity, oftentimes your purpose, your security, then how can you claim to be my disciple? It's much easier for us to hold things close with a clenched fist than it is to open our hands up. And that's the truth. We're just like the nobles. I am just like the nobles in this passage. 
Time is really, really hard to give away. You, want, you know why? Because increasingly, we know that we have very little of it. It is booked up. Talent is really hard to give for God's work. You know why? Because oftentimes we think that we're not qualified enough to give it, so we're not going to even offer because we don't want to make a mistake. Or we're afraid that if we offer to give our talent, the church is going to ask way too much of us. And money is really, 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 really difficult to give because our money funds everything we idolize in life. And it maybe is our main idol itself. There's a story in the New Testament of the rich young ruler. If you've heard it before, it's this man. He's really good. That's what the passage says. He's really religious. He's, he's done a lot of things really well. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? I, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. I want to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, it says that he looks on him with love. And he says, okay, you want to be my disciple? Here's what you need to do. You need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The rich young ruler, the original Bricolite, he says, he looks at Jesus, right? Jesus just hit that one place in his heart that was off limits. This is money. And it says that he turned away and left sad. Because he was willing to give everything else. Everything, every other part of his life, he was willing to give. But that one part, he wasn't. He held it clenched tightly. Money was off limits to him. See, the cost of following Jesus is a great cost. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Jesus is not a genie and his church is not a lamp. It's not how it works. And the vision that God has given his church and his people and so us is that we are to share and show Christ and his excellencies here in this place and in this city. This is our burden. This is our vision. And everyone is called to contribute, to give what they have received. Different measures of time, different measures of talent, different measures of treasure. All are called to give cheerfully. And now you're like, oh my gosh, what is up with this message? Well, here's the good news. This is the great news. You are not to shoulder this cost alone. You're in a family. You're in a team. Everyone has a part to play. When you read the story in the book of Nehemiah, the book's called Nehemiah, but it's not really about just Nehemiah. He's the main figure, but everything that happens in this book is because all of God's people came together and played a part and played a role. And the church is not about the pastor or the worship leader, or the deacons, or the few key leaders, or community group leaders. The church is about the people, because the people are the church. And God is calling the church, all of the people, to give according to what they have received. To contribute instead of simply consuming. We are called to shoulder the cost together. And here's the reality. This is not always true. There's some statistics that have come out um, over the last couple of years. This is one that's been out for a while. It's called the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule says this. 20% of, the, of most churches in America do 80% of the work. 20% of the people in any given church do 80% of the work. And what happens is those 20% eventually feel exactly like these people in this passage where they get burned out and they get frustrated and they suffer. Because everyone is 
consuming and yet only a few are contributing. There's this study that came out in 2016 by Barna. They're a research group and it was fascinating. So they, they took all of these Christians and they asked some very simple questions. And this is in a, a given week. Here's what they asked. How often do you pray? They found that 75% of Christians on a given week pray. So three out of four Christians every single week pray. 35% of Christians attend church. So one out of three Christians go to church on every week. One out of three Christians read the Bible. So you read that and you're like, okay, that, you know, three out of four pray. That's, that's pretty good. But one out of three go to church. One out of three read the Bible. It's a little low. You know, those are things that are really important. But look what ha- happens with the statistics when they require additional time, talent, and treasure. 18% of Christians volunteer at a church. 16% of Christians are involved in a small group. And depending on the city that you look at, anywhere between 10 and 25% of Christians tithe, meaning they give 10%. Most Christians give 2.5% of their income to the church. Uh, in comparison, during the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.5%. And and you read these statistics, and they're a little shocking, right? Wow, like one in five Christians are involved in some sort of small group. One in five Christians volunteer on some level. Maybe one in ten Christians give consistently to the church. One in three Christians go to church every week. And, And you're thinking that, and what you may be tempted to think is, oh, I need to readjust my thinking, and that's... You should not readjust your thinking because of statistics. You may think to yourself, man, I'm a terrible Christian. I'm like, I'm like those numbers. I'm contributing to the low peop, the number of 75% because I don't pray every week. Or I don't read my Bible every week. And I don't go to church as often as I should. Or I'm not in a small group. Or I'm not volunteering. Or I'm not giving. And so, man, I feel so much shame that I'm not engaged in what God is doing and what Jesus has clearly said it means to be a follower, that I'm supposed to give everything and nothing is supposed to be off limits. I'm supposed to contribute. And so I'm going to start doing that. But it's motivated out of shame and shame is never a good motivator. Or it's guilt. It's like, okay, I get it. I'm a terrible person. Fine. I'm going to sign up for a community group. It's going to start in two weeks. I'm going to sign up to serve in the church. I'm going to start giving. I get it, Carter. I understand. But that's guilt. And guilt is not a good motivator. You see, shame and guilt, they can generate a little bit of action for a little bit of time. But they'll never generate change. Shame and guilt may make you do something for a couple weeks. But it won't cause any change. It won't move you. And actually what you'll end up doing is if you are motivated to serve God out of guilt or shame, you're not actually serving God because of how much he loves you. You're serving God about because how much you love yourself because you don't want to feel any more guilt or shame. And so you serve God and you'll do what the church is asking. And so guilt and shame should not be a motivator for you to contribute or to get engaged or to get plugged in or to serve or to to tithe, or whatever the case may be. The only thing, this is what I want you to hear more than anything, the only thing that can readjust your thinking and my thinking that is always focused on consuming more than contributing, the only thing that can readjust my mind and my heart and my actions is the gospel. 
It's God's grace. It's this reality that Jesus paid my cost. Following Jesus has a great cost associated with it, but Jesus has paid my debt. He has paid my cost. He has pleaded with his blood. He has given everything for me. Why can I not give everything for him? There's a song that we're going to close tonight and sing. It's one of my favorite songs. Listen to these lyrics. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. The gospel is that Jesus has purchased you by his blood, that Jesus has paid your debt, that Jesus has gone to the cross to take your sin and your shames and your guilt so that it no longer would be a motivator for you, Instead, what would motivate you is the reality that Jesus loves you, that he forgave you, that he pleads for you. Because in this passage, one of the things that you see is that Jesus is, in fact, the better Nehemiah. He is the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes and he pleads with the nobles. Hey, please forgive their debt. Stop gouging them with interest. Join God's work. Start contributing. And they say, okay, we're going to do it. But Jesus actually pleads for us by purchasing our debt, by removing our debt altogether, past, present, and future. And then Nehemiah in this passage says that he empties his pocket, so he himself gives generously to those that are suffering. And Jesus did the same. What did Jesus do? He's reading in Philippians. He left heaven and became a servant, took on the form of humility, and went to the cross for us. He gave everything, knowing that it would take everything, his life, for yours and for mine. And yet he gave it all. See, when we reflect on the reality of the gospel and God's grace and what he has done for you because he loves you, just as you are, just as I am, with all of my mistakes, with all of my tendencies to want to consume and not contribute For all the times that I'm exactly like the nobles in this passage that are looking to take instead of give. And yet he loved me enough to come and plead for me. When you let that sink in, it readjusts your focus and your vision and your actions and your heart and your mind. And you should respond like they respond in this passage at the very end where they say, yes, we'll do it. When God looks at us and he says, here's my vision for this city. Here's my vision for his people. I have a burden that the gospel would be known here in this place, in this city. Many people would come to see me. Will you join God's church? Will you join my church and find your place and and give according to what you've received? Your response when it's the gospel as the motivator is, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do what you ask. I want to say this as we close It is very apparent in this church that God has begun to readjust so many lives here by the gospel as a motivator. If you think about what's happened in the past year here, there was a lot of people that probably felt like some of those that were suffering here that were setting up and tearing down every week. And it seemed like there was only a few of you doing that. And so we asked for people to sign up and to help with the gather team. And a whole bunch of you signed up. 
to where we have teams are serving once every two months so nobody is frustrated and feels like they're doing it every single week and no one else is contributing. We, we have Ginger Mokers doing an incredible job with our children and families. And we say, hey, we need volunteers. We had a whole bunch of you guys sign up. We lost our worship leader a year ago. And Brandon has almost for a year now been faithfully leading as a volunteer our band every single week. It takes a lot of time and a lot of work outside of here. Sarah and Michael have joined our worship team and been engaged. Christine Karras and Julie and now Bree and Leah and Lauren have been handling the connection cards every week, sending out those emails on Monday, following up with you if you're new, sending out the prayer request to everybody. Justin Tucker has not only organized our gather team, but he's taken our budget and he's made it something that is actually readable and is a model now going forward. It's incredible. It's so much time and work. Tim and Rachel have been planning parties like we're going to have tonight all throughout the year. And Christine and others have been joining in to help. Matt and Lisa and James and Kenzie have been doing fish fries as you're going to experience tonight. Pig roast. So many cool things. Debbie, who we call Mama Brickle, is here every single week early to help set up, to light the candles, to get communion ready, and to greet you with a smile every single week. We have new community group leaders, and many of you have joined community groups. We have 10 new deacons, as we announced. They're going to be installed in the next two weeks. And in January, for the first month of 2017, we're over budget in giving. God is at work in this church, guys. He is doing incredible things through you because the gospel is readjusting us together to say, what have I received and what can I give? What is the measure of time and talent? What spiritual gifts do I have? What resources and opportunities do I possess? And what what is the treasure that I've been given? And how might I contribute to what God is doing here in this church for the sake of this city? It's the gospel that's doing it, and it's very apparent. And so my prayer is that we would all ask ourselves, God, what are you asking me to contribute? I know my heart is always going to bend towards consuming. But what is motivating me by your love to contribute and to give time, talent, and treasure? Because we're, our desire is to build up this church that we would affect our city for the gospel. Together. Not just a few of us, but all of us. Let's pray.